We are awash in data and information. Almost every day, news stories are published telling us we have a one in 1,000 chance of catching some disease or that eating something we love might increase our chances of getting cancer by some percentage. It can become overwhelming trying to understand what those numbers mean. Communicating statistical information in a clear and contextualized manner is the focus of this episode of Stats and Stories, where we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism and Film as well as the American Statistical Association. Joining me in the studio are regular panelists, John Baylor, chair of Miami Statistics Department, and Richard Campbell of Media, Journalism, and Film. Our guest today is Liberty Vittert. Vittert is a statistician and a visiting assistant professor at Washington University, St. Louis, as well as an ambassador for the Royal Statistical Society. She's also a media personality, producing pieces for outlets like Fox News, NPR, Popular Science, and the Houston Chronicle. To top it all off, she hosts a cooking show on Scottish TV and was named one of the coolest people in Scotland. Liberty, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I'll also just say that a dog was on the list of coolest people. In Scotland. So, you know, it's not, I mean, I'll take it, but it's not, it's not letting me down. Maybe I'll beat the dog next time. Liberty, we've been doing this show for uh, four years now, and I think you're probably the coolest statistician we've had on the show. John's pretty cool, oh, but he doesn't man. have his own cooking show. No, no. I'll take it. I mean, it's not a high bar with us statisticians. Oh, oh, Liberty, you're killing me. You know, come on. We got ASA sponsorship here. You can't don't don't go there. Listen, we're friends with RSS. I mean, look, there you know, you're you're giving us really a bad rep. You've had a fairly eclectic journey. You studied at Cordon Bleu in addition to MIT and the University of Glasgow. How does someone who researches facial shape analysis become a TV presenter in the UK? I think by being really annoying and dumb luck all at the same time. <laughs> you know, if you bug people long enough, they just want to get rid of you. So they say yes. Um, it was a, it's, you know, it's, you know, when you're finishing your PhD, it's pretty miserable and you're procrastinating as much as humanly possible. It's true. And, you know, I saw, I saw one of these people cooking on the sh on TV and I thought, well, you know, maybe if I annoy them enough, they'll let me do it. So you, so you started with, you started with cooking, not with the stat bits on the news. Exactly, exactly. And <laughs> I, that was my original thing was the cooking show. And then I sort of, there's a lot of girls that want to have a cooking show. So I figured, you know, maybe I'd take the statistics and see if I could do anything with that. So you're actually including statistics in the, the cooking part of the program? Yeah, that that would be a very generous way of saying it. A little bit, a little bit. Statistics, maybe maybe adding and subtracting grams might be the equivalent of that. <laughs> I guess you could have been doing some estimation. That's about a tablespoon, you know. Exactly. I like, you know, I think this is the kind of statistics we need to teach students, uh, the, the tablespoon estimating. So so how did that how did that transition? What was what let me ask you this. What was the first statistics bit you did on the news? Oh, that's a really good question. Uh, oh, I know what it is. I went on Scottish television to talk about the lottery. You know, every year there's some big, you know, big jackpot somewhere and all of a sudden it becomes news. So I think the first time I went on was to go talk about the lottery. And I mean, to show you how few people watched my cooking show, the producer for that, even though it was the same channel, had no idea that I had a cooking show on their <laughs> channel. So, you know, maybe there's not exactly a good crossover between news and cooking shows. So, um... I have a, uh, a line that I use when I teach journalism students, uh, 
that comes from uh, one of the co-authors of a book called Elements of Journalism, call, uh, and, and the co-author is Bill Kovic, who was head of the Neiman Foundation at Harvard for a while. He says that the journalist's job is to make the significant interesting. So do you feel that's also a responsibility of statisticians? It's a really good question. I think that, you know, there's a line that statisticians have to walk between being significant and interesting. Um, you know, every once in a while, you see something really sensationalized. And I understand the idea behind it because it gets people to read it. But it's a really fine line that we need to walk. However, if we're not able to explain the statistics in a way that is impactful upon the individual. Maybe that's a better way of saying it than interesting, but impactful to the individual, then why on earth are they going to listen to anything we have to say and to even look at the significant results? So when you think about the kind of both the, the research that you've done and then the reporting that you've that, that you've been involved with, has, has this changed the way that, that you write about research that you do? I think that my my goal with with writing about any research I do is you know you have to be as I mean you have to be correct. There's no that's that's first and foremost. But at the same time, you know everyone's still a person. Whether you're reading a research paper or you're walking your dog, you know everyone's still a person and wants to understand how something can really impact them. So if we just write down the numbers without the story behind it, without the way that it really affects someone. I think it, it just doesn't, you know, it's almost meaningless. And I think it really lessens our ability as statisticians to communicate with the public. I've been really impressed in watching some of the clips from Scottish TV Liberty with the way you are able to uh, communicate complicated information in these really kind of bite-sized packages. There's a lot of training that scientists and researchers go through to try to teach them to, to be better, uh, you know, um, experts for TV and media, right? Uh, because we need quotes and we need sound bites. How do you, when you're prepping to go on um, a, a Scottish news program, how do you sort of figure out how you're going to present information and what's sort of going through your mind when you're trying to answer a question and make sure it's impactful in a sound bite? I always think about my dad. I know that sounds like the strangest thing in the world, but my father thinks education is useless, that academics are dumb, <laughs> you know, he, uh, fake news is everywhere. And I always think about, you know, every, you know, you get that thing that they always teach you in one of those courses, like, you know, are you talking to a child, to your aunt or to your grandmother? I don't think, I think, you know, you just think of a person who is not interested in this stuff mm -hmm. and how do you make it interesting to them? Mm -hmm. So I always figure that if my dad wouldn't like it or wouldn't found it interesting, then I'm just not going to say it. Hmm. And I'll, I'll practice on him all the time. Every talk I give, every show I do, I always practice on him. And I think that's, you know, you can't practice on a colleague because they get it. You need yeah. to practice yeah. on somebody that doesn't understand it and isn't frankly that interested in it. So, uh, you know, my dream is that one day he'll tell me he has no suggestions and I will not be holding my breath for that moment. I'm, I'm imagining you do this with students too. I, you know, I've heard in, I think in one of your TED Talks where you talked about how scary numbers are, you know, how, how afraid people are. We certainly have a lot of journalism students that are afraid of numbers. So how to, can you give us an example maybe of how you use that dad technique on students to kind of get them revved up and interested in, in data and numbers? 
Absolutely. The students are the best. They're the hardest audience. So anytime I have a new example or something interesting, I will always bring it to the students. So, I mean, every hour of lecture, I'll do one or two real life examples of misleading statistics or something that's really sort of shocking. And we'll always pair it with something that we're doing. Mm -hmm. So for example, when I'm trying to explain probability or relative risk, I'll use this one story from, I think it was last summer that French fries are going to kill you. Yeah. And it was, you know, you double your risk of death if you eat French fries. But really what it was going from is the risk of dying if you're a 60-year-old man. No offense to either one of you guys. The chance of dying if you're a 60-year-old man is 1 in 100. And if you eat, you know, a zillion French fries, all of a sudden it doubles to 2 in 100. So you have 100 guys that get to eat French fries all day, every day for their whole lives. And instead of one dying of them, two will, which... I mean, if I got to eat French fries all that much, it might be a risk I was willing to take. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I'm. I'm not thinking about French fries now. But I, I'm gonna, <laughs> uh, uh, so I would. I'm curious. What's been the hardest story you've ever had to report? You know, what's what's been the one that your dad fought back the most about? You know, I've started doing these sort of opinion editorials, which are a little bit more complicated because your opinion, you know, you try to keep your opinion out when you're doing statistics. And so when I try to do that, um, you know, sometimes when especially if something's a little bit political, people end up using your numbers and trying to say whether you're you know, political one way or the other. So I recently did an article on the cost of the wall. So I tried yes. to estimate yeah. the cost of, of the wall that is that is, you know, potentially or not not going to be built. And it was, you know, trying to completely keep my emotions out of this issue and really just try to fairly estimate how much is this thing really going to cost. I think that's the hardest is when you really start to try to, you know, really remove your emotions from something that is highly emotional and it has enormous implications. You know, another thing I was curious about is, is thinking about being someone who grew up in, in the U.S. who ended up transitioning to, to reporting on statistics in the U.K., What's what's been some of the the hardest kind of stories to tell over there, given kind of where your your origins? I think that you know it's it's a it's a different culture. You know, people think that because we speak the same language that it's all the same, but it really is a different. You know, it's a different attitude. It's a different belief system. It's just it's very different. On the other hand, you know, people always tell you to be so careful because you know a lot of people are unhappy with America right now and all the political issues going on. But really, you know, people are people, and so telling the story there or telling the story here, the whole my whole goal is always to find find that little nugget of information that will allow me to make the statistics that I'm trying to explain feel something to people. You make them understand it in a way that really means something to them rather than just, you know, some random story about statistics. And so I don't find it to be that different when you boil it down to the people are people. You're listening to Stats and Stories, and today we're talking calculations, communication, and cooking with Liberty Vittert. Liberty, I watched your... um, TED Talk, and I thought it was really interesting in the issue of sort of, you know, um, talking about the wrong population when we're when we report on certain statistics. Uh, and you, when you're talking about that, you talk about sort of the coverage of, um, you know, O.J. Simpson's trial, 
Uh, and then you talked about the the coverage of the, oh my gosh, eating the bacon sandwiches um, <laughs> and how particularly with the bacon sandwiches, right, the the way that story was covered was really misleading um, and, would, and would mislead the audience to really understanding um, what those st- that study was saying. What advice would you have for journalists who are covering complicated statistical stories um, to ensure that they are actually communicating what what the study says and not necessarily what they think it says. Ask a statistician. (laughs) (laughs) That's the easiest answer. Um, You know, it's the one thing that statisticians, I really, I really think we need to do as a group is not become the data police, you know, and always, you know, calling out people and saying you're terrible. But on the other hand, if we don't do it, who is? Mm-hmm. So I, you know, especially with like the Royal Statistical Society and the ambassadors, they are there to help. They love getting phone calls about this stuff. That's what we're there to do. And I believe the ASA has a version of that as well. And really, you know, it's it's ask a statistician. If I was going to go do something on journalism that I didn't understand, I'd ask a journalist, which I do all the time. Mm-hmm. So I think really the key is to ask someone that really understands this stuff. Are there are there examples that you can cite of things that you see repeated, uh, repeated by journalists, mistakes that they make that this that would help us in training our students, our journalism students? I think the biggest error I see, and I see it every day, and I believe me, I love Daily Mail, but the Daily Mail health section is worse about it than anyone <laughs> on the planet, uh, is this idea of relative risk versus oh. absolute risk. Mm-hmm. You know, this one in 100, you know, you're doubling your risk of death, but really that means you only go from one in 100 to two in 100. It's that idea that if, you know, if a disease, if you have the risk of getting a disease is one in a billion, you can triple your risk and your still chance of getting that disease is still only three in a billion. Mm-hmm. It's one of the mm-hmm. simplest topics to explain, and I think it's the one that I see over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. You know, your training uh, was in math and statistics. Are there things um, that status somebody training in statistics should take in college that you you would have found useful? You know, once you got into the to the work world, at some point you learned to write stories and uh and that's not that's that's not even easy for a lot of our journalism students to do so is there is there something students should be doing now um statistics students i usually ask the reverse I, question you know what I, I'm, I'm on the queue for that one now okay <laughs> all right so what do you think well, I think, first of all, thank you for about the writing stories. I'm not sure I do it that well at the moment, so I always room to learn. But I, I really think that, you know, we teach students statistics, statistics students, statistics. We teach them how, you know, high-level statistics. And I think a lot of times the basic material, you know, this quantitative reasoning can actually get lost. Because every once in a while, I'll explain the idea of relative risk to a statistics student, and they don't get it. You know, they didn't know about it before. Mm-hmm. It's the most basic stuff that I think we should be teaching everyone. That I think actually it's most important that our statistics students take this. Almost a you know a quantitative reasoning, a critical thinking course on life. I think really should be implemented in every college across America. 
Well, I, you know, I, I feel obligated now to ask the the, the, the question in the other direction. So, you know, and I think you actually have touched on it a bit by by your advocacy of critical thinking and quantitative mm -hmm. reasoning about what what should a journalist take, but more broadly, what's what's your perspective on on people that are trying to get a good solid foundation in in data literacy and statistical literacy? What what might be part of that that story? What might be part of that preparation in your mind? I, I think there's a couple programs that have tried to do it, but it's this, it's, you know, you don't need to, to know a, how to do a t-test in order to understand critical thinking or quantitative reasoning of numbers. You need to understand that sometimes, you know, there's a plus or minus game. You need to understand that sometimes results happen just cause, and it doesn't mean that one thing's better than another. You really need to understand this, this whole idea of where numbers come from. And I, I really think we miss that a lot. You know, we miss that just basic understanding. It's, it's that same idea that if, you know, if you're teaching a kid to read and the kid can't learn to read, no one ever says, oh, it's okay. He doesn't need to learn to read. You know, I didn't learn to read and I did fine in life. We never hear that. Mm. On the other hand, we'll hear parents say all the time to their kids, oh, it's okay. You know, Johnny or Susie, you don't need to learn math because I was really bad at it and I did fine in life. Mm -hmm. So I think it actually goes back even further to when we're kids and to say, you know, everyone can learn math. We just need to to find different ways to teach it to them. I was going to say, because I was reading, I cannot remember where I was reading this, where you had a math teacher tell your parents that you were no good at math and they should just give up on you learning math. Is that, am I getting that right? Wasn't that yes, something you Yes, when I was about? 14, yeah. I was told I, I'd failed a, I think it was algebra, or algebra or geometry class. And the teacher just said, she's terrible at math. She's never going to be able to go anywhere with it. And I'm not even sure she should be at this school. <laughs> oh, how right. affirming. Right. Yeah, made me feel so, really good. So how you know, my mother said, I don't care. I wanted to learn it. She's, you know, I know she can do it. And I was lucky enough to have a mother that really believed that. And she got me a, a tutor and I was lucky enough to be able to have a tutor. And I just, you know, it, they just helped me think about it differently and see, see the numbers in a different way. And I think it's the same thing. Not everyone learns to read the same way. There's a, many different ways we teach kids right. to read, but there's only one way we teach kids math. And I think that's the problem. Why do, why do you think numbers are so scary to to so many young people. I mean, um, they're scary to a, me sometimes. Richard. I know. Well, to me too. And but I, where did that come from? I remember I, being pretty good at math in high school, but at some point, I, you know, at some point, I lost that, and I don't know why. I think it's exact. You know, we hear all the time that it's scary. You know, it's that reinforced thinking. People. It would be embarrassing for someone to say, I don't know how to read. It's not embarrassing for someone to say, I don't know how to do math. Yeah, some people you know, are we, proud we, of that. Yeah, it's a badge of honor. Right, yeah. it's a badge of honor. And I think yeah. that's the real problem here. Mm -hmm. It shouldn't be a badge of honor. And I, I think it's, you know, it's our duty to figure out new ways to teach people to learn so that they... They really have to learn. And I think it's really important for parents, even if they did hate math, to not tell their kid that. You know, it's not an affirming thing. It's a, okay, how can we fix this? How can we make you better at it? How can we figure out new ways to learn? Mm -hmm. I will, I'm going to go back to that question I was asking about sort of your experience as a teenager because you're also, I think, one of the BBC's 20 ambassadors, ambassadors or yeah for, for women oh, science yeah. experts oh, yeah. or something like that oh, yeah, yeah. um and 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 st statistics and 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 fields that are seen math um hard sciences these are fields where 
um, it's very difficult to be a woman at t- woman at times. And part of that comes from you know being a, a young kid. And and I had a similar experience to you where I had a math teacher who um, didn't tell me I couldn't do it, but just basically made me feel completely dumb. And I think that's partly where my hate of math came from for a long time. And then I got into grad school, and I'm like, I love stats. Actually, I wish I I'd, I'd known this younger. How do we? What do we do to create a climate in which um, young women? feel like uh, stats or math or, or whatever sort of science-y, math-y thing they want to go into is a safe space for them to go into and something that they can pursue and they're going to be supported? I think it really starts with parents. You know, I wish I could say, you know, we can swoop in and fix everything, but it really starts at home with parents not saying, I hate math, you can't do math. I think that's, you know, the confidence is built, at least in my personal opinion, for kids at home. And further to that, though, we can give them strong female role models. You know, if you if you go to college, I, I have to say in college, I didn't have a single female professor, not one. And I had wonderful male professors and I had, I've always had spectacular experiences, but I was not taught by a single female professor. And that, you know, that's hard. If you never see someone who's a female professor teaching you, you're going to think, well, maybe I shouldn't do this. So it's not that, you know, the male professors are bad. They were, I mean, they were some of the greatest people. I have some of the greatest relationships possible with my, my male professors. But I think it's important that girls see females doing this so Mm -hmm. that they know that they can do it. Yeah, we, we host this careers involving quantitative skills for high school women every every January on campus. And one of the things that we do is we have the uh, um, uh, women faculty and, and also graduate students that are, are leading activities. And one of the things that we found is that that the, the high school women that come up are just really delighted and engaged. And, and we found it, it's attracted a number of students to, to participate and come to, come to the university. And I, so I think that those types of opportunities that create those can, can really add value and really engage. Absolutely. Completely agree with you. So what's next for you? You've been appearing on Scottish news programs, sort of uh, breaking down stats information. You have a cooking program. Um, you have a lot of things in the hopper. Do you have any new media on the horizon? What, what's next for you as far as sort of this kind of stuff goes? Well, I'm I'm really excited that next year I'll be a visiting assistant professor at Harvard um, with Shally Meng uh, in the statistics department. So I'm really excited about that. And it's with the launch of this Harvard Data Science Review, which I think will be an incredible opportunity to showcase statistics, you know, while being a scholarly journal, but in a whole new light of mm-hmm. helping, you know, everyone understand this. You know, so it's not a scholarly journal that only statisticians are able to read. And, you know, one of the things I've been working on a lot recently is writing. And I've loved doing it. And I've been really lucky to have, um, you know, some wonderful editors, which is the key Mm -hmm. I've learned to writing is (laughs) having someone else read your work that really knows what they're doing. So I think I think more on this sort of how do we really communicate numbers to people, to the public, and how do we really empower the public to feel like they can read a news story and know what's going on and know what questions to ask about the data and about the numbers. Just as a, as a quick follow-up, so, you know, this discussion of data science review and, and that effort is really in, intriguing. We're going to have Shali as a, as a guest later on in Stats and Stories. But I'm curious, what is your perspective and, and how do you differentiate between data science and statistics? That's something I've been asking myself because, you know, I'll go to a dinner party and if I say I'm a statistician, there's like empty seats on either side of me. (laughs) But if I say I'm a data scientist, all of a sudden I've become much more interesting. And I haven't quite figured out what the difference is between the two. 
So I think I think it's a really good question. I think it's something that the statistics community is struggling with a little bit of where, you know, where's the identity between statistics and data science? And, you know, in like in any profession, you have different people feeling like, oh, well, you know, if you're a statistician, that means you do methodological research or that means you do health statistics or, you know, no one really knows. So I think one of the fabulous things about establishing this Harvard Data Science Review is really, you know, some time. And I mean, that's really what shally has been doing is, you know, how do we really define this discipline of data science? You know, what does it really mean to be a data scientist versus a statistician? And I really don't think that question has been answered yet. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what that's what's going to be so great about this is, you know, that you know, trying to define it as a discipline. So do you feel do you feel any obligation or special responsibility? This is sort of a big picture question about the sort of anti-evidence, anti-science, the idea that, you know, whatever you believe is true. Um, Now, this may be connected to the whole numbers thing, but certainly in the United States, I think this this sort of undercurrent of dismissing data, dismissing evidence is troubling, I think, especially for those of us who are are teachers. Absolutely. I think it's a really, I think it's a really scary time that people are dismissing evidence. On the other hand, I do think we, and I include myself in that, are partly responsible. You know, we have spent, we, you know, when we publish this stuff or we have stories or press releases are sent out from our research that are really misleading. And mm-hmm. it's, you know, you can't expect a journalist to also be a statistician. So mm-hmm. when some of these press releases are sent out or the, you know, the research is done and the study or, you know, whatever, I think we actually are, are quite culpable in a lot of our our work in terms of having the public be completely confused by what's going on. You know, when statistics are put out there, you know, one day a glass of wine's good for you and the next it's terrible for you. What do you sort of expect the public to do? I mean, they're going to get really confused and they're going to start to dismiss the information completely. You know, with the p-value crisis and all of this stuff going on, I think at some point we really have to take responsibility as a profession to say we're really I, I hate to say it like this, but we're going to sort of police the data much more strongly than we are now. Well, I, you know, I'm going to push back a little bit on that, just just with the idea that you know some of the, the issue of headlines and the research that you're describing is not necessarily something that a statistician would have control on, Liberty. You know, a lot of times that's going to be that's that's going to be embargoed by by journals and then pushed out because of the interest in the headline it generates. And and so I don't know that there is necessarily a way for for uh, for the stat community to to uh, to help with that filtering. I mean, we can advocate and we can certainly do what we what we can. I, I think that some of the, the leadership of organizations like the American Statistical Association to to jump into the p-values um Concern of you know malpractice is is an example of the stat stat world trying to to weigh in, but you know when you think about things like the the you know your bacon story or your French fry story, you know the the stat part was probably a pretty small part of what led to that being pushed out, don't you think? I completely agree with you, and I think a lot of the work that's already being done is incredible, and I think we just need to do more of it. I do think that there are times where we, you know, and and that also, but that includes that. That includes us saying, wait a minute, this is ridiculous. You know, it includes more people coming out and saying, this is ridiculous, we can't do this. And it comes into saying that when you're writing a paper with, you know, I don't know, a doctor or whoever, saying that I want something at the bottom of that paper that says this is, you know, this is 
explaining what the significance means and explaining where mm-hmm. these things come from. But absolutely, I think I think the ASA and the RSS are doing everything they know how to. I just think that we need to keep doing more and we have to keep pushing forward because I just don't see who else is going to do it uh, if we don't. Yeah, amen. That's all the time we have uh, for our conversation today, Liberty. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter, Apple Podcasts or other places you find podcasts. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu or check us out at statsandstories.net. And be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.